Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Good morning and welcome to Hay and to number six in the series we are doing with Cambridge University. Peter Mandler is the Professor of Modern Cultural History at the University of Cambridge. His research interests include the history of humanities and social sciences and education in post-war Britain. He's written nine books, including The English National Character, The History and Ideas from Burke to Blair, and also Return from the Natives, How Margaret Mead Won the Second World War and Lost the Cold War. He's here to talk about education and social mobility. Please give a warm hey welcome to Peter Mandler. Thanks, Andy. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, it's an extraordinary uh, turnout for a Sunday at 10 a.m. to hear about education and social mobility. And as a special Sunday morning treat, I'm going to give you lots of charts and graphs, um, mostly indecipherable, but they've equipped me with a special high-powered laser, uh, laser pointer, which I will attempt to use to deconstruct them for you um, and maybe shoot down some aircraft um, uh, in between time. So I'm here to talk about education and social mobility, and um, most of us probably have in our heads uh, a story about social mobility over the last few generations that goes something like this. In the immediate uh, post-war decades, um, 50s, 60s, maybe the 70s, there was a lot of social mobility because that was a golden age to be young and alive. Um, unique opportunities were on offer to talented working-class boys and a few talented working-class girls um, by the grammar school system. And then something went wrong. This is the conventional story. You read this in The Guardian as well as in The Telegraph, I think. <laughs> something went wrong um, sometime since the 70s. What went wrong exactly depends um, on your politics. Um, maybe you blame old labor. Um, maybe the, what went wrong only happened from 1979 onwards, and you blame the Tories. If, it, if you want to date it a little bit later, it, you can blame new labor. Um, and actually, you can blame any period um, since the 1970s if you just don't like modern life. Um, <laughs> something went wrong. Social mobility went into decline. And now, most people um, uh, have no hope of, of rising in the social ladder. And again, what your diagnosis of uh, what went wrong um, is depends on um, your politics. Maybe it was the abolition of the grammar schools in the 70s, which denied opportunities to uh, working class children. Um, maybe it was the comprehensives um, had low standards. and. Um, left the field open to independent schools, which now dominate all fields of life, uh, even art and drama. Maybe it was um, the expansion of the university system of higher education. Um, too many people started going to university, um, and even university graduates now, because they're a dime a dozen, as they say in my native land, even university graduates um, are denied opportunities to improve their lot. Well, my task in the next 30 or 40 minutes, I'm going to try to leave um, a fair amount of time for um, discussion and comment, is to show you how nearly every aspect of that story is wrong, re regardless of your politics. So if you have some comfortable left-wing um, explanations for um, the world, I, I hope to show you that they're misguided. And if you have some comfortable right-wing um, uh, ideas about the world, I hope to show you that they're misguided as well. And if you're a liberal Democrat, you believe everything. So. Um, <laughs> I'm probably not going to be able to convince you, but uh, I do want to talk uh, to, to try to give some um, sociological understanding of what's actually happened um, over the last 50 years. And the one part of the story that's definitely right is that there has been an unprecedented amount of social mobility um, um, in, in the immediate post-war decades. Um, but the um, uh, inference from that, that that had to do with education is the part that I'm going to um, cast some doubt upon. Um, and since the 1980s, um, social mobility has po probably gone into some decline, or perhaps it's just leveled off. But again, I want to suggest that education had relatively little to do with it. Therefore, it will be incumbent upon me to say um, what does cause 
or inhibit social mobility um, if it's not education. And towards the end, I'm going to offer um, a few comments um, um, about um, what governments might do in order to address the real um, roots of social mobility. But I have to say, I'm an historian, um, not a sociologist or an economist or a political scientist. Um, I'm an expert on the past. We are notoriously poor soothsayers. Lots of historians will tell you that, oh, you don't know where you're going until you know where you come from. But um, frankly, I think that's pants. Uh, 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 the, the, the future rarely um, uh, has much to do with the, the, certainly the long-term past. Um, and as even the economic, um, the investment advisors tell you, um, past returns are no guarantee of future performance. But I will try to uh, offer at least some talking points, which perhaps then might lead to some discussion at the end. Okay, let's start out by talking uh, about social mobility um, conceptually first. What is social mobility? People use this phrase very readily um, without really ever defining their terms or thinking about um, what it might mean. Um, and here, see, I did warn you, there's going to be an awful lot of indigestible sociology, but as I say, I'm going to, I'm going to hope I'm going to try to make it easy for you. Also, the, can I recommend, there's an excellent team of sociologists from the LSE talking about inequality this afternoon, um, and if I fail to um, uh, uh, banish the mysteries of their discipline, they can certainly do it better than I. So um, go along and, and, and see the, the, what I consider to be the kind of the higher level discussion of some of the things that I'm talking about today. But this is um, um, the key to social mobility, as almost all of the existing studies, the ones that get cited in the press and that raise um, um, all sorts of alarms about um, uh, the past and the future. This is the scheme that um, uh, sociologists use um, to crunch the numbers that tell us whether social, there's social mobility or not. Um, and if you don't like this scheme, that's fine, but you, then you have to um, spend about 40 or 50 years accumulating data and making definitions for yourself um, to come up with an adequate alternative. Sociologists define social mobility as moving up or down, and you can have downward social mobility, of course, as well as upward, um, from one of these seven occupational categories. Let's see if my laser... Ooh, look at that. That's fantastic. Um, uh, up or down from one of these seven occupational categories in your parents' generation to another um, in, in your own generation. So it's something that takes place over quite a long time. It's intergenerational, and therefore it's not easy to measure it in the short term. So that's one thing to, to keep in mind in the background. Um, so your father's or your mother's occupation compared to yours, and then you can um, find out whether you're upwardly or um, downwardly mobile. Um, to simplify things, because that's quite a lot of um, occupational categories, although already simplifying all the occupations there are in the world, um, to simplify them further, um, John Goldthorpe, the, um, uh, the great Oxford sociologist who's still publishing at something like age 90, he's been responsible for many of the studies over the last half century, um, conventionally got John Goldthorpe um, uh, grouped these seven categories into three categories, and basically it's uh, and these are the terms I'm going to use, the salariat, that's the professional managerial classes, there are intermediate classes, that's a whole bunch of people in between, and then there's the working class or the manual class um, at the bottom. Those are the three big classes, as they're called, that we have to keep in mind. Um, how do sociologists and economists um, find out about social mobility? What is the data that they use? How do they measure it? Well, they're looking for surveys um, like the British election survey, which happens at every general election, where a representative sample of people are asked a whole bunch of things about their lives. What's your favorite color? Um, what's your favorite piece of music? Um, who are you going to vote for? Well, that's actually what the survey is for. But they're trying to find out what the characteristics of all the uh, Labour voters or the SNP voters or the Plaid Cymru voters, see how I got that in? Uh, they're trying to find out what the, all the, the characteristics of those voters are. So they ask them about their um, voting behavior, but they also ask them about everything else uh, important in their lives. And, and of course, one of the things they ask is, what did your father do? What did your mother do? Actually, they used to only ask what your father did. Um, and what do you do? And so you have a, a, a record there of um, social mobility in, in one person, and you can, you've got a representative sample, so you have a record of social mobility in the whole population. In addition to these surveys, there are a special set of surveys that the government 
um, funds um, every decade or so, the birth cohort surveys, where they take a representative sample of people who are born on one day in one year, um, and they track them throughout their lives. And they ask them, again, a whole bunch of questions. And this was initially set up in order to track child development, to find out things like um, how does birth weight affect uh, success in later life. But um, these um, birth cohort studies have since taken on a new life, and because they ask so many interesting questions about people, they can be used over such a long span of time, they can be used um, to find out all sorts of uh, other things, such as about social mobility. The first of these studies was done in 1946. Anyone here born in 1946? Little smattering. Um, 1958, that was the next one. How many 1958ers? There should, there should be lots of 1958ers, come on. No? That's my cohort. Um, 1970, mm, not very many. I wasn't expecting them. And what about 2000? Don't think we have any 2000s here, no. Now, you may ask, why was there no study between 1970 and 2000? Well, something happened between 1979 and 1997, uh, which was the advent of a government which didn't really like sociological research. Um, and so they didn't commission a birth cohort survey. Anyway, we, we ha they, they, those have been resumed, and um, uh, they, they will continue in the future. So we, we have a, a pretty good body of data about um, social mobility from things like the British Election Survey and um, the uh, birth cohort surveys. And so we actually do have a, a pretty big representative um, um, sample uh, which we can number crunch and come up with some answers which I'm going to provide for you um, this morning. But before I go on to t talk about the actual patterns of social mobility, I do want to say that one thing that social mobility that is not, or rather one thing that I'm not going to talk about under the heading of social mobility, is that very, very rare and um, uh, 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 body of people who start at the bottom and rise to the very top of the top. And yet, in the media, this is often what you will hear about, talked, uh, talked about as um, exemplifying social mobility. Um, uh, the working class lad whose father was a, a lorry driver or, or a ditch digger who rises to become the head of a multinational corporation or prime minister, well, that never happens. Um, um, or, well, actually, you know, Jim Callahan, he, he was an example of, of, this, of this type. Uh, it does happen occasionally. Um, but that's, what, that's what's often talked about in the media as social mobility, and yet, as, as you can readily imagine, it's, it's, it's rare, and furthermore, not only is it very rare, but it doesn't really describe the huge amount of social mobility, it doesn't even address um, the huge amount of social mobility experienced by most of us in this society in the, in the post-war period. It's not that it's not important, it's not that it's not interesting. I mean, it is important to know how many judges went to Oxbridge and how many MPs came from working-class backgrounds, and indeed how many BAFTA-winning actors um, went to Eton. All of those things are important, but they are not social mobility as a broad social phenomenon, which is I'm going to um, be discussing. I call that um, process of, uh, weaning out, of, of winnowing out a, a small group of people to be at the top of the society a, a process of elite selection, and it would be the subject of another um, lecture. If you want me to come back next year and do elite selection, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> okay, so let's get down to brass tacks. How much social mobility has there been over the last 50 or 60 years? When did it happen and why? Now, in the immediate post-war decades, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, and this is, if you take away one statistic, um, and I hope you will take away one statistic from this hour, um, I, I let it be this one, because I think this is one of the most amazing um, statistics in modern British history, and indeed of the histories of, of uh, most countries in the, in the world. In the immediate post-war decades, 50s, 60s, and 70s, something like 50% of all people who came to occupational maturity ended up in a higher occupational category than their parents, usually given the nature of these studies, their fathers. 50%. Of the other 50%, 25% are dropping down into a lower occupational category, and the last 25% are staying in the same occupational category as their parents. So this is, to use the technical term that the sociologists use, a tremendous amount of fluidity. But it's mostly up. 
Now, why did this happen? If we take the standard um, saloon bar account that I gave at the top of the hour, um, the answer must be that people were going to grammar school. They were getting a boost in the labor market um, by getting a higher educational qualification. But just on the surface of it, you know that that can't really account for um, the majority of that 50% because only about 25% of the population went to grammar school. This is um, a, a bar chart showing the proportion of public sector students um, by school type. Um, that is, it uh, excludes um, independent schools. Um, and you'll see that um, the grammar school population, which is actually quite a large proportion of secondary school students in 1946, that's because not everyone was going to secondary school yet, um, it stabilizes at around 25% by the mid-50s. And it doesn't get any bigger. It's actually getting smaller because more people are going to secondary school and most of them are going to secondary moderns. That's these blue bars. So only about 25% um, in this period of the uh, post-war are going to grammar school. Um, small number going to technical schools and increasing numbers, of course, from the uh, mid-50s, early 60s are going to comprehensive schools. And so now we're down at this, at the stage, well, this chart ends in 1988, but it hasn't changed much since, um, where um, about 80-odd um, percent um, go to comprehensive schools, and only about 3% um, uh, go to grammar and 5% go to a secondary modern. So um, sec grammar schools um, can only account for at most half of the upward mobility experienced in this population. 50% are upwardly mobile, 25% are going to grammar school. On the other hand, you might say, if you're a glass half full type, well, it's 25%, that's still quite a lot. That's half of upward mobility is caused by grammar schools. Not so. <laughs> and the reason, of course, is that most of the people going to grammar schools are already at the top. So those are the people who are in the stable category in the 25% of people who are not moving up, because they're already as, as high as they can get as far as this occupational structure goes. Um, and this chart shows you, um, this is one of those beautifully neat um, sociological um, reports, which makes us feel that we have no control over our lives. We're just pre-programmed by the society that we live in. Because um, it, it shows which propor what proportion of each social group um, goes to grammar school, selective state secondary school. Um, and the class one, the upper salariat, are the most likely to go, the class two, the next most likely, three, four, very neatly right, right at the bottom, except for a very brief period towards the end of this period, um, for some reason, those at the very bottom are slightly more likely to go than um, people at the, at the uh, next, next lowest group. So basically, um, the um, classes one and two, especially class one, are al already almost all going to grammar school. Um, and they're, by definition, not going to be the upperly mobile in the, when they end up in their final um, uh, class category. They're either going to be stable in their parents' class, one, or they're going to be down two, three, or four. But they can't be the upperly mobile ones. Um, there's an interesting little a historical story here, which I'm going to slip over, which is why these numbers are going up and then down, um, which I can address if you're really thrilled by it uh, in the discussion period. And what this um, illustrates is one of the, again, if there's one statistic that you can take away, it's 50% were upwardly mobile in the post-war period. Um, uh, if there's one sociological principle that you can take away, it's this, is that it's very difficult to use education to improve social mobility because there are so many other things that are determining your educational experience um, that you would have to compensate for. Um, that education alone provides very little independent um, impetus. If you know, something like 80% of class one are, are getting into grammar school, um, uh, not, uh, and carrying on into, the, into class one in future, um, clearly something else has been happening in their lives that's getting them into grammar school in the first place. Um, that's got nothing to do with the, the educational experience they're having while they're at grammar school. And this is um, the sociological principle of maximally maintained inequality. That is, whatever you do to education, it tends to either reproduce the existing inequalities in society or, in fact, make it worse. So, 
education is not the principal driver of social mobility, and I'll have a, a little bit more to say about that in a second, but first let me just um, ask the burning question, if it's education that's not responsible for social mobility, what is? If everything that you do in the field of educational reform only maximally maintains inequality, if it doesn't actually um, improve people's life chances, chances, how do they improve their life chances? How do they start at the bottom and move up? And the answer is, somewhat counterintuitively, given how um, much we've been taught to think that education and employment go hand in hand, the answer is that it's employment opportunities, independent of education, that are most responsible for uh, your chances of going up or down in the world. And in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, Britain, like most developed countries in the world, um, experienced an enormous shift away from manual jobs, factory jobs, unskilled working class jobs, to jobs in those intermediate classes, especially jobs in shops and office work, but also a very large growth in opportunities um, in the professional and managerial classes, the salariat, classes one and two. And as a result, the occupational structure of Britain is shifting from what had been a pyramid with relatively few good jobs at the top, and most people, about 80% of the population in working class jobs at the bottom, um, earlier in the 20th century. Britain in the post-war period is shifting to a, and this is a matter of some dispute, but either a, um, a diamond shape with rel relatively few jobs at the top, but lots of jobs in the middle and fewer jobs at the bottom, or probably more likely an hourglass shape with lots of good jobs at the top, relatively few in the middle, and still a fair number at the bottom. And this is a not very good representation of that shift in occupational structure. It's not very good for a number of reasons. One is that it only goes up to 1990. Um, and another is uh, that it looks at all men age 35 and over. It's not women, it's only men. And also, all men 35 years and over, that's when you're supposed to have reached your occupational maturity. If you haven't become class one by the age of 35, you can forget it. So the sociologists say, of course, that's not always true. But, uh, and in fact, uh, Mike Savage, who is speaking this afternoon, has done some research to, sh to show that especially for my cohort, the 1958 cohort, it actually takes a lot longer to reach your final class status than, than that. But anyway, uh, let's assume that you, most of us reach our maturity by 35. But by looking at this um, chart, you'll see, uh, for 35 and older, you'll see this is not measuring where, uh, where people are moving into it, because it includes all the people over 35, including 60-year-olds, 70-year-olds, 80-year-olds. Um, um, and so it's, it's actually documenting um, uh, class structure from previous generations as well as the most recent generation. So it underestimates the degree of change. But nevertheless, you can see um, in the immediate pre-war generation, about 65% are in the bottom three classes, the working class. and only about 18% are in the top two classes, the salariat, whereas by 1990, about over 40% are in the top two classes, and under 40% um, are in the bottom three. So that's been a big shift. And it necessarily means more and more and more people are upwardly mobile, moving from the working class into the intermediate classes and the salariat. Not only are there too few people with educational qualifications to fill these jobs, that is, you know, there aren't enough um, grammar school kids with O-levels um, to, um, to qualify for the huge increases in opportunity to move into intermediate and salariate class jobs. But not only are there too few better educated people to fill available jobs, but most of the better jobs being created in this period don't require any education at all anyway. Again, in the early 21st century, it's easy to forget how, because how few people had education qualifications of any kind before the 1970s, um, how necessarily lots of jobs that we think of now as graduate jobs or at least requiring A-levels or maybe GCSE, everyone has GCSE, so all jobs must have required GCSE. It's easy to forget how few jobs required any of those things before the 1970s. Most people had no educational qualifications whatsoever until the 1970s. They didn't, if, if you went to a secondary modern school, you didn't take exams. You didn't have a school leaving certificate of any kind until after 1966. 
Uh, if you went to grammar school, you might have picked up some O-levels. Very few people still, until the 1970s, had A-levels, and hardly anyone went to university, something like 5% in the 50s, um, only about 13% in the 1970s. So almost by definition, most good jobs, including a lot of professional and managerial jobs, didn't require educational qualifications, and the employers who were going out and looking for um, candidates to fill those jobs didn't expect them. And so they would go to um, well-kept, um, in, in seemingly intelligent kids who went to secondary modern schools and left at 15 or 16 without any educational qualifications, and they hired them to do things that today we think of as being highly skilled and requiring a huge amount of education. Not even law or accountancy required um, uh, a university degree um, until uh, the 1970s. In other words, neither law nor accountancy were, were graduate professions. There were very few graduate professions before the 1970s. Um, medicine is the obvious one, um, some scientific professions. The one that was most widespread was teaching, um, and um, uh, teaching required um, two A-levels um, from relatively early on, and then um, some um, service in a teacher training college. So it required higher education, but practically no other profession required higher education before the 1970s. And below the level of the professions, a lot of the rapidly expanding jobs um, in local government, in offices, um, even in the helping professions, social work, nursing, um, even a, a technical field like engineering, none of these things required any educational uh, qualifications at all. They would take you in as an apprentice, they would train you up on the job. No, one, no employer was looking at your CV, no employer was looking at your exam performance um, until, again, really, very recently indeed, the last generation or so. And as a result, there were opportunities for uh, upward social mobility, really for people with every kind of educational qualification and none. And I've told you the one statistic to take away, 50% upward mobility in the post-war decades. I've told you the one sociological term, um, maximally maintained inequality to take away. This is the one chart. Um, I'm not sure whether Hay makes a provision for um, making this PowerPoint slides um, available to people when they go away, but um, in any case, uh, my email address is pm297 at CAM, C-A-M, that's my employer, the University of Cambridge, sponsor of this event, uh, pm297 at cam.ac.uk. Um, if anyone wants to, if they can't, haven't imprinted this chart permanently on their memory, um, if they haven't taken a picture of it, you can take a picture of it with your smartphone. Uh, you can always write to me, pm297 at cam.ac.uk, and I will send it to you. Because what this shows is the percentage of every um, uh, uh, cohort born in these, these sorry, these are people who uh, are reaching occupational maturity in their late 20s, um, in 69, 79, 89, 99. Um, this is the percentage of each cohort that is upwardly uh, uh, mobile, um, depending on their level of attainment. So you'll see that with the partial, par partial exception of people who don't even have much secondary education, um, the difference between your chances of being upwardly mobile um, are if you have only lower secondary, that is if you left school at 15, or if you went to upper secondary and um, got O-levels or A-levels, or if you went, had some higher education, or if you had a degree, the chances of being upwardly mobile were pretty much the same. A little bit worse, not that much worse, if you had hardly any secondary schooling at all. And that's true for most of these cohorts. Um, the blue bars are pretty much all the same height. That's an exception. The purple bars are all the same height. That's an exception. The cream bars are all the same height. The blue bars are all the same. The light blue bars are all the same height. Now, it's true that the proportion that are upwardly mobile is dropping. But it's nothing to do with uh, the level of education they have, because the people with degree level, their upward mobility is dropping as is the people who don't even have A-levels or um, O-levels um, is dropping. So many people are moving up, those with higher education and those who left school at 15, 
And this doesn't change. The educational level you've attained doesn't affect your likelihood of moving up in the occupational scale. But as we can see, moving into the late 20th century, your chances of moving up are dropping, no matter what level of education you have. Why? Did life suddenly get tougher in the 80s and 90s? This, don't forget, is the 1958 cohort. This is my generation. Were we just not very ambitious, not very talented, not very well educated? Or did the opportunities um, offered to, the, to our parents and our older siblings by that bonanza of job opportunities in the 50s and 60s and 70s, did that uh, fade away? To some extent, the latter is, is the case. The opportunities simply weren't there for my cohort, born in 58, entering the job market in the 70s, um, and reaching occupational maturity in the 80s. To some extent, um, the opportunities weren't there. And we all know what happens in the early 80s. There's a huge um, bump up in unemployment. Um, and one of the things that Mike Savage, who's speaking later on this afternoon, has shown is that if you're born in 58 and you enter the job market, let's say you leave school at 16 in 74, the school leaving age had just been raised to 16 at that stage, um, you, you, you might get into employment and you might get a, a good job in the mid to late 70s, but you're very likely to get unemployed in the early 80s. Um, and then it's very hard to resume whatever upward uh, path you might have been on. And that's even true of people like me who went to university, left in the late 70s, and as soon as we entered the job market, we found, well, there was no job market. Every, the, the, the bottom had fallen out of it. And that was true even for people with high educational qualifications like me, as well as for people who'd left school without any educational qualifications. So it takes a lot longer for us to reach our occupational maturity uh, and the opportunities to move up um, um, smoothly up, move up are not nearly the same as they were for our uh, parents and um, elder siblings. But in fact, that sob story um, is only accounts statistically for a relatively modest proportion of the um, declining higher mobility that you see, regardless of educational qualification, on that light blue bar. The chief effect is a simpler one. It's so stunningly simple that when you hear it, you think, that can't be right. And then actually, if you think about it, and I'm not going to let you think about it because this will um, throw into hazard my entire lecture, uh, the more you think about it, you think, well, that can't be right. But if it's right, then maybe this way of measuring social mobility is just nonsense to begin with. I will try to address that. But don't think it yet. <laughs> the chief effect is the simple one. There had been such a huge growth of professional and managerial jobs in the post-war decades. Half of the population moving up, working class kids moving up to the intermediate classes, intermediate class kids moving up to the, to the salariat. Um, that there is, as the sociologists put it, simply lo no longer any room at the top. See, they cleverly choose that uh, 1950s grammar school boy novel um, by John Brain as their title, but it's clever. There is no more room at the top. The hourglass shape of the uh, uh, occupational structure means that there's just um, most people are, are at or near the top already, and they simply can't move any higher because there's no room on the seven-class occupational schema for them to, to, um, to, to go to up, upwards. Um, and instead, what you, what you inevitably have in this situation is just statistically more downward mobility because there are so many people at the top, just at random, there's more likely uh, uh, to have uh, people, more people who are falling. Um, and this illustrates that um, phenomenon perfectly. For the cohort, again, reaching occupational maturity in 1969, here we have that 50% who are going up and something like 30% who are going down and 20% who are in the stable. And every cohort after that, the proportion going up is dropping, the proportion going down is rising. And that's very largely simply a statistical effect of the occupational structure. If you're already at the top, you've got nowhere to go but down. And in addition, this is, this is perhaps uh, more interesting and also more worrying, um, parents in the salariat, classes one and two, are getting better at keeping their positions for their children, especially for their boys. And this shows, um, over time, the proportion of 
each cohort, this is the hard, these are the two hardest graphs, so if you want to just go, go, go off for a snooze now, um, I'll give you a warning in about four minutes and you can wake up again. Um, but I, still, I do think these graphs show something really interesting and something that's, that's, that we all know about because it, it's been in the media and for once it's a story that's true instead of a story that's been jiggered to suit the uh, fashions and habits of the proprietors. Um, this, this shows the proportion of um, all men um, who remain in the same class as their father. And over the post-war period, for the people at the bottom, of course, that's falling because there's, they're moving up. So fewer and fewer men in the working class um, are staying in the working class as they reach occupational maturity. That's what you'd expect with rising boats and rising tides and better job opportunities. But what's really striking is that um, the ability of um, salariat parents to keep their sons in the, uh, in the salariat is also improving. So the downwardly mobile are less and less likely to be people at the very top and more and more likely to be people at the middle. And this graph, if you were able to continue it, um, and we don't have that good data for the period after uh, the 1990s, um, would show a continuing improvement of class one and two parents' ability to keep their sons in class one and two jobs. So that's not, uh, I mean, there still are some statistically falling down, but the class, intermediate class children are much more likely to fall down than the, the salariate class. Um, just to compare, this is the, the, the story for women. Um, you see again uh, that women are even more likely to move up and out of the working class um, than men. Um, and compare these two figures, 50% um, um, of working class men are in the, in the, still in the same class as their, as their fathers, but only 30% of working class women. So working class women are, much, are benefiting even more than working class men from upward mobility, but the salariat women are not benefiting so much from the efforts of their parents to keep them in the salariat. Now, and in fact, it's, it's, it's only 50%, whereas it's up, heading up for 80% for the men. Um, sometimes I show this to my students at Cambridge University, um, who are mostly, um, I'm afraid to say, uh, from salariat backgrounds, not entirely, but uh, they're overrepresented. And I show them these ch charts and I say to the women, go home and ask your parents, why are you less good at keeping me in your high class status than you are for my brothers? Um, I don't know that they do, because no one ever comes back and tells me, my parents said. <laughs> so salariat parents are getting better at keeping their positions for their children. And again, it doesn't have a huge amount to do with education. Um, if you're, obviously, if you're a, a salariat child in uh, higher education, you're going to go into a salariat job. Um, and 90% of salariat children who are in higher education go into salariat jobs. But actually, 90% of working class children who are in higher education go into uh, salariat jobs as well. The more striking statistic is a third of salariat children who have no educational qualifications whatsoever. They left school without any O-levels or without any GCSEs or with a minimum number of GCSEs. A third of them are also going to end up in the salariat. So the salariat parents, I'm probably speaking to a few, I, just, just, I didn't do a poll of how many people are in the different social classes because that would cause class war and Hay would never forgive me. But I imagine there are a few salariat parents in the, um, in the audience. Um, and uh, 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 it, well, as I say, you, you should talk to your sons and daughters about um, why you're not uh, uh, helping the daughters as much as the sons. But um, you may be doing other things to help your children um, stay in the salariat, and it may have nothing to do with their education. You may be getting them one of those famous unpaid internships. Um, you, may getting them, you may just be getting them to talk proper. Um, sorry, I can't talk proper because I'm American, uh, and I'm not even going to try. Um, you may be just dressing them nicely. You may be giving them huge amounts of social and cultural capital. You, you, know, you may have taken them to the Hay Festival, for example. <laughs> Um, all of those things are going to help them stay in the salariat, uh, regardless of how much education they get. Um, and this is why I think it's very true that to, uh, I think you know, one of the things that politicians have been focusing on recently, and they're right to, is to try to get at mechanisms like the unpaid internship, which are passing on class privilege 
without regard to um, educational qualifications, because those indeed, um, those techniques, those um, uh, sometimes unconscious mechanisms, sometimes very conscious mechanisms are proliferating and they are um, causing um, uh, celeriac children to have an easier time than they should. Now I'm getting near the end of, of the time that I, I do want to leave a little time for um, um, questions. Um, I, I just want to say that um, if you're worried that these seven classes um, are not a good way to judge social mobility um, and that the fact that you can't get higher than class one is a problem, you're right to worry. And in recent years, economists have been coming in to replace the sociologists and offer different measures. And one of the measures that they offer are income deciles. Um, so um, the top 10% of income earners and the next 10% and the next 10%. And they've been finding ways to measure movement between these income deciles. And the virtue of those is that there's no, um, you know, the, the top 10% are always the top 10%, um, regardless of how much um, they earn. And you can have people continuing to rise um, further up the scale of income. You know, you can have, foot, there's room for footballers and, um, and celebrities and, uh, uh, and there's room for professors in a lower decile, which I won't <laughs> specify. Um, the problem with that income data is that it's very poor. We don't have the same kind of records, like the British Election Survey or the cohort studies, which are able to say, my income is this, and my father's income was that. Um, they don't, they don't um, deal very well with household income, the fact that um, some households have two workers and some households have one. Um, but um, uh, nevertheless, if you do look at income um, measurements rather than occupational measurements, you get, a similar, you get some similar results. Um, social mobility is slowing, doing the slowing change in the labor market structure. Um, the great transformation of the post-war decades was a one-off event. It can't be and it is not being repeated today. The salariat is better at retaining their position in the top 10% of the income distribution. Um, and, and this is the most important thing that the economists have added to this equation, and again, this is something that you'll all be familiar with, but it's nice to see it shockingly illustrated in my chart. Um, it's especially the 1% that have been best at maintaining their um, um, standing. Um, the, um, this, this, is, this is not about social mobility. This is just about how the top 1% um, of the income distribution uh, relates to the, the rest of the income distribution and the top 5% and the top 10%. And as you can see, since the 1979, yes, I'm afraid it is 1979, um, the top 1% has just flown away. And of course, that means that they have more money to pass on to their children. So you could imagine that would have a dampening effect on um, downward mobility. But the top 10% and the top 5%, although they did improve a little bit during the course of the Thatcher governments, since the early 90s, their position vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the population has remained fairly stable. What is the moral of this story? If the huge expansion of education, secondary and higher education is not principally responsible for upward mobility, and if upward mobility is declining in a period of continued expansion of higher education, we're now up to nearly 50% of the uh, birth cohort going to university, what can we do about it if we can't use the magic bullet of education? Well, this is a political question, really, but I just want to, as I said, uh, I would at the beginning offer a few talking points. Education is not the thing that we should be focusing on most. It's not irrelevant, but it's not the most significant factor. It doesn't create better jobs on its own. This is a, a, a story often told by politicians. If we make people more, better educated, they'll just automatically go into better jobs, but it doesn't work that way. And neither does it necessarily improve equality of opportunity for those jobs because of maximally maintained inequality. That is, the, those who are better off tend to get, make better use of the education that they're offered and to get better, more benefit from it than those um, who are less well off. If you want more equality of opportunity, you've got to accept more downward mobility as well as more upward mobility. We need to find some way to get those salariate parents um, to treat their boys the way they treat their girls. Um, we need to challenge the salariate's ability to maintain the class position of their children. That usually has um, only um, a modest amount to do with, social with uh, education. And there are various ways, all of them equally unpopular with uh, elect the electorate, I think, and, and, and thus with politicians. There are, there are various ways to achieve this, but um, none of them seem on the political agenda today. You can redistribute income, which is what we used to do. You could take money away from the salariat and give it to other people, and um, at that point they, they just lack the income advantages that the salariat has. They still have 
the, the nice dress and the nice clothes, and they still go to the Hay Festival, but um, they have less money to pass on to their children. Or you can do what um, New Labor used to call pre-distribution. You can invest more money in children at early ages, um, before they um, enter education or in the early years of education, um, things like Sure Start um, and later the Educational Maintenance Allowance, um, uh, which keeps working-class kids in school um, past the compulsory school-leaving age. And those, it, again, the sociologists have tended to conclude that those two uh, measures, Sure Start and EMA, were the two measures of the, of, uh, the new labor governments that were most effective in improving upward mobility for um, children of the working um, and intermediate classes. But as I say, no, downward mobility is not a winner. I mean, no, um, no matter how well-intentioned you are, you're, none of you here, if you're in classes one and two, are going to respond very well to a message from the politicians that you must uh, accept lower income, lower social status, uh, lower, uh, fewer opportunities for your children. Redistribution has proved, as yet, politically uh, unpalatable, and even pre-distribution, which was made fun of um, um, when Ed Miliband um, introduced the term, um, has turned out to uh, not yet be a vote winner. So you can see why politicians continue to push education as the magic bullet that will solve all your problems. It, it, used, it, it thrived at a time when um, upward mobility thrived. Um, now that upward mobility is failing, um, um, we can still continue to push um, education as the solution to all our ills. And as an educator, I applaud more investment in education. Let me get that uh, perfectly clear, and I hope my employer is listening. Um, but um, it's, education is for education. It's not for social mobility. And as a citizen, I do deplore the false hopes and claims being made for education, which is going to turn people off as they find more and more um, disappointment that a university education doesn't guarantee that magic ticket to the salariat. Um, and to, in order to avert that um, uh, terrible political outcome, I, I give talks like this. Thanks very much. Now, we've got about 15 minutes for um, comments and questions. I think no sociologists are allowed to uh, participate in this discussion. And the stewards have, so there's one um, right here, um, the lady in, yes, you? Oh, sir, you haven't got there yet. Can you, can you get, get it there? And can we have one over here as well for the next? I have a mic. Oh, right, good, excellent, thank you. Hi, thanks very much for the brain food. Can, can I'm we have over the house, here. Can, yeah, can we have the house lights down? Hi. Or up, I mean or whatever, whatever it is I can see. Yes, thank you. Your analysis looks at journeys across two boundaries currently. I'm wondering whether a reanalysis using all seven social groups shows the same picture. And I also wonder whether grammar schools are doing anything different from other schools at the moment. Um, most of the data covers all the barriers. I mean, I was using the, 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 the salariat and the... Um, uh, working class simply to um, illustrate that particular point about um, whether you're likely to stay in the same class as your parents. But yes, it's true that the intermediate classes are bearing the brunt of the downward movement. Um, and almost just by default, if there's more downward mobility and the, work, and the salariat is not suffering from it, then yes, it's got to be the intermediate classes because again, the structure of, the, of that uh, occupational classification means they're the only other people who can go down. Um, I mean, grammar schools are, it's an incredibly complicated um, question, and, uh, but the, it, most of the sociological data shows that the one thing that uh, grammar schools do best for their students is they recruit students who are already succeeding. They're already in, in, in salariat backgrounds, they're passing an exam which draws heavily on the social and cultural capital that their parents have conveyed to them at, at a relatively late date in their development, and um, they continue on that upward trajectory that their parents had designed, uh, laid down for them from early on. Um, this doesn't mean they don't give a bloody good education. They do. But they're giving it to an education of, of uh, they're giving that bloody good education to a, a pre-selected audience of people who probably are going to end up in the salariat anyway, even without it. Now, yes, did you have the mic? Yes, I do. Um, looking at that graph of female social mobility, it, um, and said specifically age 35 at date, 
I wonder if that would look very different sort of 10 years earlier or 10 years later because 35-year-old women yeah. are disproportionately going to have fairly young children, more likely to be in part-time, fairly routine work, light, not particularly manual, so that will be an upward yeah. trend for the women from working-class backgrounds and downward trend for the women from professional backgrounds. Yeah, no, that's a good point. And, uh, I mean, first of all, it, it's perfectly true that most of this data ends in around 2000. Um, and so we don't have as good data of, uh, about the continuation to, to the present. Uh, the only reason why we use 35 is, is, is that's trying to uh, judge occupational maturity. And you're quite right, occupational maturity is, um, is different for w women and men. But it, it's, it's just the general trend that you, that you need to look at here. Um, and um, that it's, fall it's falling. Um, and um, the um, uh, and the and the the sorry the, the class one and two trend is only rising very gently, and salariat parents are not able to secure salariat um, futures for their uh, daughters as 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 they are for their sons. It started low, but it didn't rise, whereas the previous one um, started higher and rose higher. Um, you can find the same results if you look at other dates. Uh, the only reason you choose 35 is because, as I say, you imagine that's about when both men and women have, are, have reached occupational maturity. But that's also, as you suggest, not always a safe assumption. Uh, one of the reasons why the income data is so bad is that we are still very bad at um, judging household income um, because women move in and out of, of employment. And, you know, you, the, the family doesn't move out of, in and out of the salariat just because the... The, the woman is having maternity leave. Yeah, you've highlighted some important issues in relation to gender. I wonder what analysis should offer in relation to ethnicity. Yeah. Um, again, we have very, very poor data because um, uh, the statistical significance of the sample only starts to become uh, really important around now, I mean, in the last 15 years. Because, you know, the ethnic minority population of, uh, of Britain in the 50s when the um, cohort studies began was, you know, something like 2%. Um, and now it's, in England and Wales, something close to between 10 and 15. So there's been a tremendous change. Uh, and, um, I mean, I have a little bit of anecdotal evidence. I mean, not anecdotal evidence, but anecdotal memories of the sociological surveys. Um, and we, we know that there are substantial differences in upward mobility between ethnic groups. And um, I remember being very shocked when, uh, when I went to a comprehensive school in North London to, uh, where I was considering sending my son. Um, and the, um, the headmaster said very honestly and frankly um, um, to a largely middle-class group of prospective parents, now I'm sure you'll be asking me, wh what about the problem of white working-class boys? Um, and we were all, <gasps> we all went, <clears throat> I mean, partly because we didn't have white working-class boys, and, but, but partly because I think we were quite, quite admiring of the frankness of that kind of discourse, and it showed that the school was, was worried about this and thinking about it, and, and that was an ethnic statement as well as a class statement. And it's true that white working-class boys um, have, you know, have, uh, uh, white working-class boys have suffered most from this stagnation of social mobility more than any other group. Uh, white uh, um, uh, Afro-Caribbean boys also um, Asian girls, generally speaking, doing very well. Um, so we do have some anecdotal evidence, and it'll get better and better as the, as the statistical sample grows. I'm, I'm going to let the stewards do this, so, uh, yeah. Um, just... Oh, sorry, there's one over here. There's one over here. Hi. Um, just a question you didn't touch on, and I imagine that you haven't got enough data yet, but um, the charging for universities... Mm that's kind of yeah. happened over the last, what, 20 years? Yeah. I mean, when I went to university, it was basically free. And in fact, I got a grant for beer money, frankly, for, um, as a sort of working class kid. Yeah. Um, do, you, do you have any views, if you don't have the data, yeah. on what the fact that we were you know, charging 9,000 pounds per term, probably more in future for yeah. people to go to university, what effect that's gonna have on the lower social classes versus those that can frankly afford it in the top? That's a very good question. I mean, unfortunately, although there are, of course, many examples like yourself of, of, of working class boys and girls who went to university because they could get a grant, um, uh, that didn't uh, substantially shift the um, constituency going to university in the heyday of the grant between the late 60s and the um, 80s. 
Um, the, as university education expanded in that period, maximally maintained inequality, remember that? More salariat sons and daughters went to university and began to outstrip working class participation or continue to outstrip it more and more over time. By the way, that is the answer to this question. Well, actually, I'm not going to go back to that. It's too complicated. Uh, so the grant didn't help widen participation. Um, in fact, if anything, it helped um, salariat participation. Now, um, that's because as late as the 1980s, very few salariat children went to university. I mean, if only 14% of the population is going to, to university, and the salariat is now about 35%, most salariat children didn't go to university until the, until the recent expansion. And in the recent expansion, the salariat uh, began to in increase its representation even more. Now, at some point, we reached a threshold where the salariat is so saturated with higher education that you can't grow anymore. At that point, working class and intermediate class participation starts to rise. Um, so far, the uh, 9,000-pound fees has not statistically affected um, the participation of the lower groups. I think it's been overwhelmed by the, um, the longer-term statistical trend towards the salariat being saturated, other groups being uh, benefiting. Um, but some of the work that Mike Savage and his team have shown, uh, have, have done uh, recently, I don't want to give away the, you have to go at 2.30, you can't assume that I've told you everything. But I mean, some of the work that they've done, done has shown that there's more segmentation now happening at the top. So working class kids are going to university in growing numbers, um, but upward mobility or uh, inco um, high income attainment is dependent now on getting a postgraduate degree or going to the right university. Um, and um, Savage and his team have got some really staggering data about what the income of a graduate of University X is versus the income of a graduate of University Y. And the universities that working class kids tend to go to, their, their in graduate income is lower. So far, the, 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 the 9,000 pound fees hasn't made any, any difference at all. As I say, I think it's been overwhelmed by, there's a huge cultural shift. Everyone wants to go to university now. And the salariat is already there. So everyone else is, is moving in. This is not to say it won't change. This is not to say that after you know, five years of debt, when you get more stories like the one that was in the papers last week about the kid who said he was missold his grant, uh, his, uh, his loan, it may be that that will start to affect um, um, working class participation, intermediate class participation. And it may also be that some of the things, the disappointments that I was predicting at the end of my lecture will cause people to turn away from university. I hope it doesn't. Because, uh, as I said, quite apart from its effect on social mobility, we want to educate every child in this country to the maximum of their ability, and we want to maximize their ability before they go to university. Fascinating account of what's happened in this country. I wonder if you looked across countries whether education might not get a better rap. Yeah. Um, so far as I remember, if you look at adult literacy and numeracy levels, in most northern European countries, they're pretty good. In Britain and America, they're bad. Uh, and if you look at social mobility levels across northern Europe, it's good. Uh, in Britain and America, it's bad. Now, obviously, uh, correlation does not, uh, yep. uh, is not causation, but intuitively, it seems likely that if you take the trouble to educate the mass of your population, you are more likely to get higher social mobility levels. And I wondered whether you'd agree with yeah. that. I mean, that is common sense. But I, when I've tried to suggest that the common sense may not be as watertight as it looks. Um, so there are a lot of in, uh, comparative studies of social mobility done by sociologists. If these studies are fraught with uncertainty, poor data, variant results, you can imagine how poor the comparative studies are. And they're, they're, they're poor principally because the data sets don't match up. That is, the way in which we measure things here, they don't measure them the, the same way in Sweden and Germany. The consensus, if there is one, I mean, there isn't one, but if I try to pluck out from the middle um, um, a, a position that I've seen often in the sociological literature, it's that Britain is not as bad as America. It's in the middle, but it's not as good as Sweden. And uh, that is both in terms of um, um, opportunities for social mobility, equal opportunities for social mobility, regardless of um, class background, um, and in terms of um, educational um, participation and attainment. Britain is in the middle. America is, is, is poor. Um, and Sweden is good. Germany, which, which is the one that everyone wants to compare us to for some reason, 
Um, it's very, very hard to compare because they have such a different educational system. And um, there's some evidence that um, the, the famous apprenticeships, which are supposed to be the jewel in the crown of the German educational and social mobility system, are not very good for social mobility because they do tend to lock you into um, a single occupational category and the opportunities to move out of it are rarer. Higher education in Germany is good for social mobility, but the apprenticeship system is not, and the result tends to be something of a wash and um, doesn't put Germany necessarily um, higher up the social mobility league tables than Britain. But I have to say these are really very speculative conclusions, and, and the sociologists change their minds about it every 16 minutes. Ask Mike this afternoon, he'll change his mind. You've touched on these issues in the previous questions. I'm wondering how much you feel that the nature and quality of education uh, <laughs> actually has an impact. Are we educating in the right way yeah. for the jobs that are going to be available? Well, and I have uh, 16 seconds. Um, and I, fortunately, that's an, a, a question that I can answer in about 17 seconds. Um, as an educator, I don't think the, the purpose of education is to prepare people for jobs. Um, Education does prepare people for jobs, but in ways that are very unpredictable. Britain has a late specialization system where people, uh, early specialization system where people choose their subject of study very early on, sometimes as early as 16. It doesn't seem to impair their ability to get employment in a very wide range of, um, of occupations. Because it's an early specialization system, they have a very intense um, subject-specific education, and that has all sorts of cognitive gains, um, which don't match up very clearly with a job. So, I'm, I, I personally am happy with an early specialization system. I'm pretty happy with the quality of British education. Um, and um, I'm unhappy with the um, extent to which people have opportun equal opportunity in the employment market, but I don't think that, has, uh, that should be laid at the door of education. And at that point, zero, it says. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs>